Welcome back to Core Anesthesia. Whether you are a student prepping for tests and boards or a CRNA here to earn CEUs, we are glad you've joined us. For more about us, make sure to check us out on Instagram at Core Anesthesia and online at coreanesthesia.com. Welcome back to Core Anesthesia. I'm Cole here with Tanner. Today we want to go through the clotting cascade and coagulation in general in the body. While Tanner and I have really preached throughout our episodes the idea of memorizing concepts rather than just memorization of facts, this is one of those topics I feel like you just have to memorize the information. Uh, There are some concepts that we can do here that kind of put things in broad categories, but for the most part, this is just going to be a memorization of all the different factors. So I apologize in advance. It's just going to be one of those topics that you have to do that for. So without further ado, uh, Tanner, you just want to start us off here with blood vessels in general. Today, really what we're talking about is if there's an injury to a vessel wall, you're going to want to have a response that will correct this bleeding, but then you also don't want to have a drastic response where now you have too many clots and there's issues with blood flow, and then you don't have the blood flowing through these vessels anymore. So constantly, these vessels are trying to keep a level of hemostasis here by creating enough clots and then also breaking down those clots. When we talk about blood vessels, first let's talk about the structure of them. The tunica intima layer is made up of endothelial cells. These will produce procoagulants, anticoagulants. You'll have mediators, fibrinolinics. This layer is basically what separates the blood from the vessel. So this first layer is going to be very important for this clotting cascade that we're going to talk about. When I mention mediators, let's briefly go over some of those things that I just brought up and then we'll talk about the other two layers. So your mediators are going to be things like von Willebrand factor. This is a cofactor for the coagulation cascade. You'll have tissue factor. This activates the clotting cascade pathway during vessel injury. You have thromboxane A2 and adenosine diphosphate, which you also see as ADP. This will cause vasoconstriction of the blood vessels. We'll get into why that's important here in a minute. And then you have nitric oxide as well. This will inhibit platelet adhesion and aggregation. Also plays a factor with causing the relaxation of the vessel muscle, which will cause vasodilation and increased blood flow. Prostacyclin is another vasodilator of the blood vessels. It will interfere with platelet formation and aggregation as well. You have collagen, which stimulates platelet attachment to the injured blood vessel. We'll talk about this again here in a few minutes, but that will interact with your von Willebrand factor that I already mentioned. So these are some of the mediators that we're going to be talking about. It's important that you understand their function and their role because here in a little bit, we're going to be talking about these in relation to other factors and where they come in the clotting cascade. So it's really important that when these come up, you understand what their function is. So like I mentioned, most of those are going to be on the first layer of the endothelium. The second layer is going to be where the collagen is. That's going to be important, like I mentioned, for the attachment of these platelets. And then you have your third layer, the adventitia. This is going to be what releases the nitric oxide and the prostacyclin, which is going to really affect the vasodilation of the blood vessels. You have a muscle layer after that. That's what's going to actually cause the vasodilation and constriction of the vessel. But again, that's going to be all from this first layer releasing these mediators. Great. So let's jump into what's going to happen when you have an injury to a vessel. 
there's two types of hemostasis that we're going to talk about. There's primary hemostasis and there's secondary hemostasis. Primary is going to be that first initial thing that develops to try to limit the bleeding through the damaged vessel, and that's going to be through a platelet plug. So that's primary hemostasis. And then in second, we'll get into the secondary hemostasis, and that's the actual coagulation cascade, but we'll go through all the different coag factors. Before the platelet plug, the primary hemostasis, it's relatively straightforward. The idea here is when a vessel is injured, that internal layer is going to be damaged and expose that second layer underneath it, which contains the collagen like Tanner was talking about. When that collagen is exposed, that's kind of what stimulates all this to happen. So if you have an uninjured blood vessel, it's not going to clot when blood's flowing through it because that inner layer, the endothelium, is going to keep releasing this prostaglandin and nitric oxide, which will inhibit platelets from being activated. So in this case, the platelets just keep flowing on through. However, when there's an injury to the vessel wall, the injured vessel is going to release thromboxane A2. And this is going to cause that smooth muscle around the vessel to spasm in that tunica media layer that Tanner talked about. And it will decrease blood flow that's going past that injured site. The idea here is to limit the amount of blood flow coming past, which will then limit the amount of bleeding that occurs. Secondly, this will build up all the platelet counts and procoagulants in this area where we want it to do its job and form a clot. So after that spasm occurs of the vessel, there's three steps here forming a platelet plug. First is adhesion, then activation, and then aggregation. So adhesion is going to be when that endothelial layer is damaged and that collagen is exposed underneath, like I just talked about. And von Willenbrand factor, so VWF, is going to be released from the damaged endothelial layer and bind to receptors on platelets. Specifically, there's a GPIB receptor on the platelet that this von Willenbrand factor will bind to, and it will take the platelet and anchor it to that collagen layer, that subendothelial layer. So platelets will bind now to the collagen, and at this point, they're going to become activated. So let's pause here for a moment and talk about von Willenbrand disease. And this is when you're going to have three different types. The first type, so type 1 von Willenbrand disease, is that there is a decreased amount of von Willenbrand factor being produced. Type 3 is when there's none being produced at all. And type 2 is when what is being produced is dysfunctional. So why is this a problem? Well, it's not going to be able to bind to those platelets, like I talked about, to cause adhesion to that collagen layer. And so those platelets aren't going to function properly because they're not going to be binding to that collagen. So that's the problem with this disease is those platelets aren't going to function properly. Now, von Willenbrand factor normally carries an inactive form of factor eight. And we'll get to this when we talk about the coagulation cascade. But it's important to note here then that when you have a decreased von Willenbrand factor, you're also going to have a reduction in the amount of factor eight that is going to be able to get activated. So as a result, our PTT and our bleeding time is going to be increased. Now, what do we do in this situation? If you have type 1 and sometimes type 2, you can give desmopressin. Desmopressin causes the body to release more of its natural von Willenbrand factor. So this doesn't work well in people that have type 3 when none's being produced at all, but it will kind of stimulate the body to release more of its natural von Willenbrand factor. You can also give fresh frozen plasma, which contains most coagulation products. And then you can give cryo, which is more of a concentrated version of just a few of the factors you want to give. And specifically, 
von Willebrand factor is one of those factors in cryo, which is why it's nice. Or you can even give a purified form of von Willebrand factor and factor eight mixture. So that's important to note. So that's the first step, adhesion. Next, we have activation. So how are platelets activated? Well, they're activated by binding to the collagen. The platelets then will release thromboxane A2 and ADP, which will in turn activate other platelets and help with more aggregation by allowing those glycoproteins on the platelet to bind to fibrinogen. So these activated platelets will then release more contents, and that will be things like fibrinogen, fibronectin, and then also more von Willebrand factor. After you have activation, you'll move into aggregation. So activated platelets have two glycoproteins on the surface. So this would be GP3A and GP2B. Together, these receptors will help aggregate platelets together to form your platelet plug. So this is kind of the final goal that we're trying to do here. All right, so now that we understand the primary hemostasis of forming a platelet plug, let's get into the coagulation cascade. And this is where, I'm sorry, it's just going to be memorization of factual information here. So let's just jump right into it. There are going to be two pathways that converge on a common final pathway to forming a fibrin clot. And this is the extrinsic pathway and the intrinsic pathway. Before we jump into those, you're going to need to know 13 factors that are going to be involved in this coagulation cascade. So number one is fibrinogen. Number two is prothrombin. Number three is tissue factor. Number four is calcium. Number five is labile factor. Number seven, so I skipped six. There is no six. That's not an error. No six. Seven is stable factor. Eight is anti-hemophilic factor. Nine is, yes, it's Christmas factor, literally the name, Christmas factor. Ten is Stuart Prower factor. Eleven is plasma thromboplastin antecedent. Twelve is Hagman factor. And thirteen is fibrin stabilizing factor. Put those on flashcards, memorize them really well. This will make the rest of this really easy. Well, not really easy. None of this is easy, but this will make this easier if you just memorize these 13 really well so that you don't have to try to put these things together as we move forward. So put them on flashcards, get these down pat because these 13 factors can be really important moving forward. All right. So jumping in now, our goal here between the extrinsic and the intrinsic pathway is to converge on factor 10. Once you get to factor 10, is where there's an overlap and that's more the common final pathway. So I'm going to separate these into what happens in the extrinsic pathway to get to 10, what happens in the intrinsic pathway to get to 10, and then we'll talk about what happens after 10, which is that common pathway. So let's say that you have an injury from outside the vessel. That's going to be your extrinsic pathway. If you have an injury inside the vessel, that's going to be your intrinsic pathway. So at least that makes sense. Extrinsic is only going to take a few seconds, whereas the intrinsic pathway will take a few minutes to get through their pathway. So let's talk about extrinsic first. So like I said, it's activated from the outside of the vessel wall. So for example, let's say you have like a crushing injury from the outside, a trauma, and then that will cause damage to that vessel. What's going to happen is tissue factor is going to be released from that surrounding area. Tissue factor is factor three, and this is going to cause factor seven to be activated. So remember, factor seven is the stable factor. So once stable factor seven is activated, it's going to bind with calcium factor four, 
and allow factor 10 to be activated. Boom, you're done with the extrinsic pathway. That's all you need to know. You need tissue factor, which is factor three, along with factor seven, and sprinkle in a little bit of calcium there, factor four, and you're gonna activate factor 10, and you're ready to go. So this process is gonna be blocked by warfarin, and this is because warfarin inhibits the factors that are made from vitamin K, because it prevents vitamin K from becoming active, which will then prevent the following claudium factors. Two, seven, ding, 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 seven, which is why this is blocked, nine, and 10. So if you have somebody that's on warfarin, you can reverse it then by giving vitamin K, but this is gonna take a while to reverse it. So if you need an emergent reversal because they're bleeding, you can also give FFP, which is going to provide all these claudium factors back into the patient's plasma. And lastly, with the extrinsic pathway, we use PT and INR to measure this. So since this is for extrinsic, it measures how long to form a clot via the tissue factor and the calcium. So when you're using PT and INR, you're specifically looking here at the tissue factor and calcium being able to activate factor 10 along with factor 7. This is normally 12 to 14 seconds, and it'll be increased about two to three times with warfarin. So like I said, this is really, really fast. 12 to 14 seconds gets you through the extrinsic pathway, but it will be double to triple the amount of time when you're on warfarin. All right, since that was so simple, we'll move on to the intrinsic pathway. So like Cole mentioned, this is going to take a little bit longer. This is activated when the vessel itself is damaged. The intrinsic pathway will start from factor 12. This is the Hagman factor. This will be activated from the collagen that is being exposed. So if you have an issue with your endothelium, this is where that collagen is exposed, and then you start your intrinsic pathway. Activated factors 12, again, Hagman factor, will activate factor 11. This is your plasma thromboplastin antecedent. Activated 11 will activate factor 9 in the presence of, you guessed it, calcium, factor 4. So keep that in mind. You'll see calcium in both the intrinsic and extrinsic pathways. Activated factor 9 along with factor 8, which is the antihemophilic factor, will activate factor 10. Simple. Okay, you're done with the intrinsic pathway because you got to factor 10. So again, that goes pretty much right down from 12. 12 will be activated with 11. 11 will activate with factor 9 in the presence of calcium. Activated factor 9 along with 8 will get you to factor 10. The intrinsic pathway is going to be blocked by heparin. So Cole mentioned that the extrinsic pathway is going to be blocked by warfarin. Now in the intrinsic pathway, it's important that you know heparin is what's going to block this pathway. A way that Cole told me about this one time was that you give heparin inside the vessel. I mean, I know you can give it in the sub-Q and stuff as well, but just think about heparin. You can give heparin IV, so inside the vessel. So this is going to be your intrinsic pathway. Heparin will bind to antithrombin. Antithrombin is an anticoagulant in the plasma that prevents coagulation by blocking thrombin. So that's where your site of action is going to be for the heparin. Heparin makes antithrombin work much better and assists in blocking factors 2, 9 through 12. So that 9 through 12 is really what's going to block this intrinsic pathway. To reverse this, you can give protamine. For patients that have antithrombin deficiency, heparin won't work for them. So these patients are more at risk for clotting. With these patients, the treatment for this would be to give them antithrombin concentrate. 
Patients can also have heparin-induced thrombocytopenia or HIT. This is something that you probably heard about when you're working on the ICU and you're giving heparin to patients. You need to watch their platelet levels very closely. In type 1, heparin causes platelets to aggregate. In type 2, the body releases IgG antibodies, activate platelets, and cause a lot of plugs to be formed but the platelet count is going to fall because you're basically using up all of these platelets and you're not able to make enough new platelets quick enough. And so that's where you need to be watching your platelet levels. If you're giving somebody heparin and you see a drastic decrease in your platelet level, typically at about 50% of your initial value, this is when you need to start thinking about HIT. If somebody has HIT, then you're going to obviously want to stop the heparin immediately. Your gold standard to diagnose this would be a positive C-serotonin release test. And so you want to make sure that this is on your radar. And then if so, make sure you get that ordered so you can make sure that you know what you're dealing with. Your intrinsic pathway is going to be measured by PTT and ACT. So remember that the extrinsic is PT and INR. Intrinsic is going to be your PTT and ACT. So your APTT stands for activated partial thromboplastin time. This is typically around 30 seconds and it measures the time it takes to make a clot using calcium and phospholipids. So this will be increased by about two times with heparin. Remember that with your extrinsic pathway, that was much shorter, just a matter of seconds, whereas this is about 30 seconds, again, double with heparin. Your ACT, this is your activated clotting time. You might have used this lab value when you were getting ready to pull sheath or something in the ICU. Typically, you see this around 100 to 120 seconds. And then this is, again, just something that you'll want to be monitoring for procedures where you're going to be giving heparin. Right. I've used it a couple of times just with simple vascular cases where they give heparin to make their job easier and not have anything clot off during the procedure. And we take ACT right at the beginning three minutes after, and then every 30 minutes after that. And we just monitor that ACT level. One way that I remember PTT versus PT is the intrinsic takes longer than the extrinsic and PTT is longer than just PT. So I remember the longer form PTT goes of intrinsic, whereas just PT goes of extrinsic. That works for me. If it confuses you, forget I ever said it. So moving into the final common pathway now, So if you recall, both the extrinsic and the intrinsic have now converged on activating factor 10, which is your Stuart-Prower factor. So at this point, that activated factor 10, when it's in the presence of factor 5, the labile factor, and calcium, factor 4, if you haven't figured it out yet, you need calcium for like everything in the body. This is another reason. So if you have factor 10 combined with factor 5 and 4, and you sprinkle in some phospholipids on some platelets that also are going to be involved here, you're going to activate factor 2 which is prothrombin. Prothrombin, when it becomes activated, will turn into thrombin. So thrombin is activated factor two. So remember, that's a combined teamwork effect here. You need factor 10, which is activated, factor five, and factor four, which is calcium, to form this complex along with some receptors, and then you're going to activate prothrombin into factor two activated form, which is thrombin. So that complex there, 10, five, and four, is called the prothrombin activator. So if you ever see that word, that basically just means you're on your common pathway here and you combine that 10, 5, and 4 factors to form this prothrombin activator complex, and that's what activates prothrombin into thrombin. At this point, activated factor 2, your thrombin, will activate factor 1, which is fibrinogen. Fibrinogen, again, in the presence of calcium here, 
can form fibrin. And this is where you can throw on some factor 13. Factor 13 is the fibrin stabilizing factor. So this will take all those fibrin that molecules that you're making and reinforce them and form cross bridges and just really support this clot of fibrin that's being formed. So again here, this process is also inhibited by heparin. So not only does heparin inhibit the intrinsic pathway, it'll also inhibit the common pathway as well. The next thing we want to talk about is the contemporary cell-based coagulation cascade. So this theory basically takes what we just talked about with the extrinsic and intrinsic pathways and talks about it in a, a little bit different way. And so a lot of the things that we've already talked about, you need to understand the extrinsic and intrinsic pathways to make good sense of this contemporary cell-based coagulation cascade. So this as well has three phases. You have initiation, amplification, and propagation. So for initiation, this is going to be similar to the beginning of your intrinsic pathway. You have injury to your endothelial surface. This is causing tissue factor to be released. Tissue factor will activate factor 7, and then factor 10 is activated into the common final pathway. Thrombin levels here may stay low due to the tissue factor pathway inhibitor. This is sometimes abbreviated as TFPI. So this will limit the amount of the tissue factor that is released. This brings us into the next phase. So this is going to be amplification. So while the initiation is kind of where this whole thing got started, keep in mind that thrombin levels are staying low. Amplification now is where the small amount of thrombin that is made in the initiation phase will activate platelets. So factor five and nine, which will cause more thrombin to be made. Now we're getting to the next phase, which is going to be propagation. So you'll start making large amounts of thrombin, which will lead to creation of fibrin. And then this is where you get your successful secondary hemostatic plug. Whereas the intrinsic and extrinsic pathways just basically worked on their own and they came together to form the final common pathway. With this theory, you need to think about these all kind of working together and then you're really thinking about those three phases, the initiation, amplification, and propagation. And so these are all working together to form your plug instead of just strictly having uh, intrinsic and extrinsic pathway leading to your common pathway. Regarding the clot, again, like we mentioned earlier, your body is constantly trying to create hemostasis. So while you are not trying to bleed out, you're also not trying to clot everything up and then have decreased blood flow or no blood flow. And so now you need to start thinking, well, how do we break down the clot? So fibrinolysis is the breakdown of the clot made up of fibrin. This will increase your blood flow, helps wash away the ADP and the TXA2 that you're causing vasoconstriction. Remember, the vasoconstriction is really helpful to stop bleeding and also cause all these factors to kind of coagulate here at the injury. You need plasmin to break down a clot. A way to remember this is plasmin sounds like plasma, so you want it to go back to plasma, liquid blood. So plasmin is what's really going to be important to break down the clot. Plasminogen will be activated into plasmin by the tissue plasminogen activator. That's TPA. You probably have heard TPA, but not the tissue plasminogen activator. TPA is something that we give all the time on the ICU. And this is something that is made in our own body. This is what causes the plasminogen to convert to plasmin. And again, this plasmin is what's going to break down the clots. Yeah, so that's something I never knew. I never realized that like TPA was like a natural thing in our body. We just give people a bunch more of it. Yeah. Like 
So I thought it was just like a synthesized drug that we gave. Yeah. Antithrombin three will inhibit thrombin. Protein C and S will inhibit factor three, five, and eight. So remember, factor three, five, and eight. Where are we going to find those on our clotting cascade? Uh, so three is going to be extrinsic. Eight's going to be intrinsic, and five's kind of once they both converge. I think. Yeah, the final common pathway is five. So that's where the protein C and S are going to inhibit those factors. Tissue factor pathway inhibitor blocks tissue factor. That if they could just name all of these like that, it would make all this so much simpler. Tissue factor inhibitor that blocks tissue factor. And then in order to limit the breakdown of a clot, you have antifibrinolytics such as alpha-2 antiplasmin and then TPA inhibitor are used. So again, the TPA inhibitor is just going to inhibit that TPA. The TPA is what's going to convert that plasminogen to plasmin. Great. So hopefully you're still with us at this point. You guys deserve a reward if you're still (laughs) with us by this point. (laughs) So antiplatelets, they are going to be used to block that primary platelet plug. Thankfully, it's named appropriately. So remember, ADP receptors are going to be used on the platelet to start this platelet plug. Because remember, you're going to have ADP and thromboxane A2 that are going to be released initially from that collagen and then bind to that receptor on the platelet. So we can give an ADP receptor inhibitor to block this all from starting. So Plavix is a perfect example of this. That's an ADP receptor inhibitor. We can also give G2B and 3A receptor antagonist, or you can even give COX inhibitors such as aspirin or NSAIDs. So most of these should be stopped several days before the procedure. So depending on the medication, there's a little lengthy list of the three different types here. But from what I've seen, they're all multiple days, three days up to most of them are even a week prior. You can do an anticoagulation block of the clotting cascade. So for example, here we've already talked about it, heparin or warfarin are going to be perfect examples of blocking the coagulation cascade. So they are anticoagulants. Heparin, as we already said, blocks the intrinsic and common pathway. You can do thrombin inhibitors. You can do warfarin, which is that vitamin K antagonist. And this one, you should stop about two to four days before the procedure. The heparin, depending on which form you're giving and how much heparin the patient is getting, will depend on how long you need to stop for the heparin. But for the most part, that's more hours rather than days. But this warfarin is two to four days. So keep in mind that if you do have to do an emergency reversal, giving vitamin K is not going to reverse it that fast. You We'll have to do more FFP to just get those coagulants back into the blood in higher numbers to overcome the effects of the warfarin. And then lastly, you can also do a fibrinolytic. And so this is mainly just used to encourage that breakdown of the fibrin. So as Tanner already talked about, this is the one that we often give immediately when a patient comes in with a stroke caused from a clot and we would give TPA. That's a perfect example here of a fibrinolytic. So fibrinolytic doesn't necessarily stop the clot from being formed. This is more of a help break it down faster type of a thing. Okay. So the last thing that we want to talk about here before we wrap up this discussion is thromboelastogram, which is abbreviated TEG. So this is going to be a visual measurement of the ability to form a clot. So think of this as the more visual it is, the bigger the clot. So you have your x-axis on the diagram and that's going to be your time. Y-axis represents the amount of clot. So the thicker the band, the more fibrin there is. So moving from left to right of the diagram, that's going to be as time progresses. You start with a skinny line because we haven't formed any fibrin yet. 
this is the R time, which is typically around seven minutes. If this time is prolonged, then the patient may need more coagulation factors with some FFP or something like that. As the band starts to widen, this is the K time. So this is around five minutes. And then you look at the angle at which the band widens. So that's the alpha angle. And the bigger the angle means the better and faster the clot is forming. So typically this is around 60 degrees or so. If the K time is longer than normal or if the alpha angle is reduced, this may mean that you have reduced amount of fibrinogen and you may need cryo to fix this. The widest part of the band is the maximum amplitude. So this is around 50 to 60 millimeters. If there's an inadequate amount of functional platelets, then this will be reduced. And so where you get to the wide portion of this tag, if that is skinnier, then you have reduced amount of functional platelets. Lastly, you can measure the width of the band an hour after the maximum width to determine how long it takes for the clot to be broken down. And you only want it to decrease by a few millimeters from the maximum amplitude. If it decreases too much, then there's too much fibrinolysis and the patient probably needs some TXA to prevent the breakdown of these clots. Hopefully this is a good reminder and a synopsis of this hematology. This is very involved and complex. Like Cole said, usually we like to talk in terms of concepts. This is a lot of memorization, but hopefully the more you listen to this, the easier this will become. 